the Diversity in Action podcast, presented by the BLX Internship Program. Join us as our hosts, Emlyn Miles Mattingly and Louise Rosa, interview guests from across the financial planning field to highlight the real change that's happening in our industry. If you're tired of just talking about diversity and want to learn about what's really being done to make the demographics of our profession more closely match the population of this country, this podcast is for you. This episode is brought to you by eMoney Advisor, LLC. eMoney provides technology solutions and services that help people talk about money. Rooted in holistic financial planning, eMoney solutions strengthen client relationships, streamline business operations, enhance business development, and drive overall growth. More than 98,000 financial professionals across firms of all sizes use the eMoney platform to serve more than 5 million households throughout the United States. To learn more about eMoney, visit eMoneyAdvisor.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Diversity in Action podcast. I am Louis Rosa with my co-host, Emily Miles Mattingly. Today, we have two pioneers in the industry, people that have been super supportive of the BLX Intention Program from the very beginning, and we're super excited to have them on. They are Jason Naylor and J.D. Bruce with Abacus, and we are going to have so much insightful content today. We're just super proud and grateful of all the work that you guys are doing and the support that you provided us. So JD Bruce is, they're both in the growth department at Abacus. So they're going to tell us a little bit about everything that encompasses. JD is a leading voice on business operations, leadership, and technology in the RA world. Jason, just make sure the systems are up and running smoothly so that their amazing team can make a difference for their clients in the world. He's a reader, a writer, Loves music, cooking. We're going to talk about that too. Brewing, Latin, and the great outdoors. So without further ado, so it's the man that needs no introduction, Jason Naylor, and also J.D. Bruce. Welcome both. Hello. Thank you so much. So glad to be here, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Super excited. Yeah, let's jump right in. So tell us just a bit about your background, how you got to where you are today, and your role at Abacus. Sure. Hi, this is JD. We're both in, as you mentioned, in the growth department at Abacus. And I started out as a CPA at Pricewaterhouse, you know, wore a suit every day uh, to work. When I stood up from my chair, I had to put my jacket on. It was a rule. It was an amazingly interesting place to start my career. I got out of there as quickly as I could, went into the internet world, right? As I figured I'd make a billion dollars from some internet IPO. That was February of 2000. For you historians out there, you remember that was about 30 <laughs> days before the big crash. And I worked in internet for a long time, got a master's in IT and started doing uh, consulting around technology and finance. Ended up getting recruited at Abacus to run a small division of our kind of pre-robo-advisor robo advisor for small accounts. And that was in April of 2007. Again, if you don't believe market timing works, I am proof that it totally works in the opposite direction. If you see me joining an industry, you know it's destined to have a big bit of trouble right after I join. And I've been an Abacus here ever since. I've done just about every job here at Abacus. I was president for a while, and I've done just about everything else too while I'm here. Wow, that's amazing. So that's good to know. So if, if you're joining industry, that the heads up to go the opposite way. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't follow me into an industry. It's definitely not the right way. Gotcha. How about you, Jason? Well, I started in tech as well. Never wore a suit per se, but I was doing desktop support and actually I came in to Abacus as the first dedicated hire to the then just newly created tech department. I had left another job and pitched a crazy idea to Abacus. 
And they said, that's a great idea, but let's start over here instead. So we did that. Um, that went along for a bit. And then at a certain point, they decided to spin up this new department, yet another new department, the Department of Innovation. And JD tapped me to join that department. And now, yet again, we're transforming into the Department of Growth <laughs> to, uh, to make more amazing stuff happen. I do get bored easily and so frequently <laughs> yes. you know, change my role every little, every it's little a, bit. Just to, it's a ride, yeah. <laughs> Brent Kessel is one of our founders. And back when he was considering what he wanted to do next in his life, he was a former commercial mortgage broker. And so he was looking to create some new thing for himself. He was kind of done being a mortgage broker. And he had two real large interests. One was personal finance, and the other was therapy. Uh, his stepfather and mother were both therapists. And so he was kind of looking to get into human behavior and understand how people tick. And ultimately, he decided to kind of put, put those two things together. And that's what financial planning is, essentially. And so he went, got his CFP. As he was naming his firm, he was actually back in India when he was planning this whole process on a month's, weeks or months long retreat. And he was looking for some name and philosophy that kind of brought together wisdom from both kind of the historical Eastern wisdom and Western wisdom. And the abacus is all about numbers and calculation and money, but has that kind of link into another culture. And so he went with that one. As you look around, there's a lot of abacus financial firms because it's a pretty, pretty obvious choice to think about that hand counting that has a lot of attention to it. And it involves mastery and practice to be able to use it effectively. And that, I love that context around what they were thinking when they named it. Can you tell us a little bit about the, both of you, just tell us a little bit about the work you do at Amherst. Well, Brent and Spencer, our founders, when they started the firm, they're both Buddhist and they were both really hungry for bringing that behavioral work into financial planning. They were early followers of George Kinder. They actually met at a training in Hawaii for George Kinder workshops. They were learning to teach his workshops back in the day. And so when they founded the firm, they wanted to bring a lot of the Buddhist concepts that they had studied and a lot of the things they were learning from George Kinder. And they were part of the Nasruddin project and a lot of that kind of early millennium, like around 2000, a lot of that work that people were doing to bring that philosophy and ability to work with people's psychology into finance. And so we were kind of founded on that basis. And you know, it's been very important to us from the beginning. We were also big believers in using our investment dollars to create social change. And so just about every generation of you know, ESG or SRI or sustainable investing or impact investing, and there's you know, been the term Jour for so long uh, that just keeps changing over time, but they've been part of all of it from essentially the beginning and have always had incorporated that kind of investment philosophy into our firm. And then in about 2009, we elected to only offer portfolios that had some level of social screening. Oh, wow. That's very impactful. That's amazing. So tell us about like your evolution throughout the different roles you've had, you know, like what did you start doing? And then how did that come about to just the, the growth department in general? Sure. I'll give you a quick pathway through the various things that I worked on. When I came here, it was as chief operating officer of a separate company that Abacus had created to deal with low minimum investment portfolios. It was called Kubera Portfolios at the time. And they wanted to create a firm that was able to capture all those 
smaller accounts that other advisors were kind of kicking off their platform as they were raising their minimums. Back then, it was it kind of the popular wisdom was you want to start, get clients, and then as you grow as a firm, you slowly raise your minimum over time. That was kind of the way everyone did it. And they started to do that. And they tried and they tried a few means of getting rid of some of the smaller clients. And they just really hated it. And they said, there has to be a better way. And so they created a firm to be that better way. And so they just took all those small clients and put them in there and said, well, we'll create our boutique firm over here. And then all the other clients can go over there. There are problems with that structure. And so they brought me in to run it and have it be this kind of separate firm. And a couple of years after I joined, we came out and said, hey, you know what? This would actually be better as all one thing and be able to take one firm that can help people at all levels of wealth, as opposed to you know, kind of this firm over here and then this firm over here. And you have to graduate and it became this kind of difficult situation to manage around advisor career paths, around client upgrade paths. And so we ended up with you know, some sticky problems. By merging the firms, we eliminated those problems. And so when we merged, I took on the role of chief wizard. And as chief wizard, I was responsible primarily for technology, portfolio management, and essentially all the new stuff that we were doing. So all of our, I was looking at innovations. I was looking at mergers and acquisitions. I was looking for anything that involved kind of making the firm different than what it was. And then we had a chief operating officer who was responsible for kind of keeping the trains running on time for our advisory department and those sorts of things. A few years after that, our chief operating officer left. And I took over her role as well and became president. So I had overseen at that point, uh, just about all the things other than overseeing advisors and operations. Ultimately, I took that on. And then a year after that, we did our first big merger and started ultimately creating the governance for our firm that allowed us to kind of grow at the next generations. Like 2012 was a big year for us, kind of a transformative year of going from more of a startup and a practice into creating the governance for the firm that, that we are now. And a couple of years ago, I realized that we had created a management team that never needed a president. So we had a CEO, we had chiefs of departments, and I was kind of standing in the middle of our CEO and our department. So I said, I'm going to do something else and worked with uh, Brent Kessel, who was our CEO at the time, to be our uh, chief of innovation, essentially kind of an R&D department looking at identifying things that would allow us to grow in the future. Uh, we did that for a year, but then we hired new COOs. I'm uh, sorry, we hired new CEOs. So we have new co-CEOs of our firm as of February. And in reorganizing the way they wanted to run the firm, they created this new department, the growth department, and put in there a few, uh, few pieces of what we needed to do and tapped me to run that. So that's where we are. Oh, that's quite the trajectory. And the undertaking. Yeah, I get bored easily. So it's nice if I kind of, you know, change my role <laughs> now and again so that I don't get, uh, don't get bored. If I get bored, then crazy stuff starts happening. I start making all sorts of suggestions that everyone's like, whoa, maybe let's, you know, put that one on the side. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds something similar to what happened with Jason, right? When you, when you had those big ideas that told you to kind of put them to the side. Tell us, Jason, a bit about your trajectory as well. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, like I said, I've been working in desktop support, actually, in an entertainment marketing firm. And that was lovely. But at a certain point, I'd come to terms with that job as being, you know, morally neutral, right? It wasn't doing anyone any harm for me to be supporting these artists and making these, you know, movie posters, and whatever like that. But that rationalization started to be less satisfying. <laughs> and around that same time, actually, I encountered a very interesting new to me then, and I think somewhat new in the world in general, 
notion around philanthropy, which is a movement and also an organization called effective altruism, and that their idea is to answer the question of how how can we do the most good with the you know time and or money that we commit to charitable giving or for philanthropic support. And I just found that idea really fascinating. And at a certain point, I pitched the idea of like, oh, let's have a role at this firm, which I'm not a member of, I don't work here yet, <laughs> that you know, does this, that basically curates philanthropic giving for the clients. And yeah, in much the way, way that uh, JD was describing, people were like, that's a great idea, but it's pretty out there. So let's try something that we know will work first and see where that goes. So anyway, that was my entry to the company. And yeah, JD was running the tech department at that time. And we, you know, our sort of big project and innovation there was just the, the transition to the e-money platform. Anyway, that went so well, I guess, that they <laughs> thought, okay, <laughs> let's do even more crazy stuff. So here we are. <laughs> yeah, with that, I'd love to hear that. Like, I think sometimes when, and for me, I almost speak for Luis when I hear like the trajectory or like how you do this and then you do that and then you do this. It makes me feel better about the way that my career has gone because we've had all kinds, I've had similar things where I'm doing this, I start that and JD, you say you get bored and you start doing stuff. I, I Same thing. If I have too much extra time, I have to fill it with something. So I find myself doing a lot of stuff. But what I wanted to kind of get into a little bit with both of you was I wanted to ask this question about diversity, you know, and, and what does diversity mean to you both? And then, you know, why is it important? Because I know this is something that, that's very important at the firm, very important to both of you, just because of the work that you've been doing in the industry. But wanted to give you the floor and I ask you about those two questions. Well, I grew up in a very non-diverse area. We had a pretty sizable Latinx community down in Orange County in California and a strong Vietnamese community because there's a you know little Saigon down there in Westminster. But that was about it. And the area I lived in, it was super white. And I still live in a predominantly non-diverse area. I'm here in Topanga, California, which is, I think, the home of white guilt. <laughs> <laughs> and when I look at our industry, it looks like my hometown where it doesn't represent what the world looks like. And I'm a fairly unique thinker, I think. And when I look at this industry and wonder what happened and how we got here, it seems fairly obvious, but also a little bit bizarre that when I talk to people in this industry about why it's you know 75% white men or whatever, nobody has really an answer for it that isn't, well, there's just systemic barriers to this happening. It just looks like there's a blockage somewhere in the flow of how this is all supposed to work. I hate blockages in the flow of how things are supposed to work. I am devoted to the idea of efficiency and just natural flow. And when I see, it's how I approach innovation. I approach innovation, it's like, this should be happening. Well, it's not happening. Well, why isn't it happening? There's got to be something in the way. Let's get those things out of the way. My leadership style is kind of rock remover in chief. I just start taking things out of the way so that good things can happen. And when I see such an imbalance. I just want to get it balanced. You know, there's moral and ethical arguments for diversity. And I believe in all of those. But fundamentally, it just comes down to me looking at this weird knot of problems. And my greatest joy in all the world is untying knots. Literally. Actually, my wife brings me anything that's tangled up and says, here, and it's like my birthday, I get to untangle something. And this problem just looks like the biggest knot I've ever seen in my entire life. And I can't stop myself 
from trying to untie it, regardless of the moral and ethical implications, because those are there. But I also just really enjoy the idea of solving this intractable knot of problems that have created this imbalance. Got it. That reminds me of, I once got one of those like brain teasers, like two pieces of metal that come together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I might have to ship it to you to see if you can untangle those. <laughs> I have boxes um, of them. <laughs> <laughs> I have two kids. They inherited a lot of stuff for me. And one of those things is they like disassembling those particular little puzzles. Uh, boxes. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. You know, it's so powerful what you were saying and about like the systemic issues and, and you liking to be like the rock mover in chief, you know, what are some of the diversity initiatives that you're currently undertaking at Abacus? Well, the BLX internship is a big one and I'm not in charge of our diversity initiatives. So I bet whatever I tell you, there's going to be about 30 more things that someone's working on across the <laughs> firm. We tend to be fairly decentralized and our current CEOs in particular have eliminated a lot of the concentrated DEI initiatives in exchange for making sure that there's DEI initiatives at every level and in every project that we're doing. It is, in their mind, kind of the constant lens that we need to be looking through at every project instead of having it be its own project. And it was an interesting outcome. We did a whole DEI consultant coming in to really look at our firm. And when we read the report afterward, it just looked like a consultant a list of consulting advice. Like, here's all the things you need to do to be more inclusive in your firm. And all it is, is just make your firm better. Not so that you have more diversity, but so that you'll be better. And part of being better will allow for a more inclusive environment, right? Things like have better defined roles, have, have your governance be more transparent. And when we saw that, I think it kind of opened our eyes that this isn't a separate problem from just good governance and good management. So on some level, we've just said, well, let's just be awesome. And then we'll be in an inclusive environment because that seems to be the advice we were getting. And we realized that indeed, that's not a separate thing. It's just about being good for everyone. If you're good for everyone, you're good for everyone. And then from a recruiting standpoint, I think we're you know, taking some very specific actions like the BLX internship is a great example of one of those things. But if we are creating an excellent firm with the intention of ultimately having it be as diverse as possible, essentially matching from a proportionality standpoint what the US census looks like, then it touches everything we do. And so it's hard to identify, hey, which is a diversity project and which one isn't. I love that because it's ingrained in the fabric of the company, right? It's not something diversity shouldn't be in an event. Like it's just, it shouldn't no, be an event. <laughs> you never get there. And interestingly, like we had a big effort to get to gender parity at our firm. When I first joined in 2007, one of our advisors was female of a period. And most of our operations staff was female, but that's pretty normal. We looked like your typical firm when I joined. After 10 years, we had more women advisors than men. We had an equal number of female partners. And by every metric other than total percentage owned, just because that takes a little bit longer, we had achieved gender parity. And there was a degree to which that wasn't a project, but we had this sisterhood initiative, right? That some of our, the women at our firm uh, created. And we actually created that sisterhood initiative after we had an equal number of women advisors. Because we recognize that there's one thing to get there. And actually getting there is pretty easy. Someone asked me on Twitter, like, how did you get to have an equal number of female advisors? And my only response was, well, we hired them. And that's, <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, fundamentally, it's not harder than that to kind of achieve parity, but ultimately you need to create a space that's good. And so that sisterhood initiative wasn't about getting there. It was about being good once we were there. And that's more important on some level. Yeah. Wow. No, I mean, I love that as well, because it's part of your culture, right? It's not just a check in a box, which I feel like some companies might do as part of their, you know, even well-intended, right? Just like, okay, let's hire a consultant. And like, we hired a consultant, we have a diversity and inclusion committee, check, all right, next, right? Right. Well, on some level, that's the right approach. It's just that step one and two of a 20-step process. It doesn't finish the project, but you kind of have to do those things first. You got to do the learning. If you don't do the learning, then then you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. I like what you said, though. It's like, it's just steps one and two of, of a long process. So if you're really committed... And I love how you just tie it to just being better as a firm in general, right? So it's so true because it's not just checking that box for the sake of checking the box. And obviously, yeah, you have to do the learning and you have to be willing to be wrong too, right? And learn as you go, right? There might be things that you might be afraid to say or do, right? Just because you don't know, but it's amazing. And, you know, I know you guys are big supporters of the BLX program. You know, you took on multiple interns both years. And, you know, the amazing story that we've heard, it's been like life-changing for some people, you know, just to have been given that opportunity that they felt like it just wasn't available, you know, and it's, uh, you know, you say it like, oh yeah, we just hired it. Right. And I think a lot of firms also struggle with like, well, where do we get them from? Right. Cause I, I hear that a lot too, from other firms, like they just don't know where to get the diverse pipeline. So it's like, where are you looking, right? It's pretty easy. You just call BLX and start an internship. And you know, <laughs> by definition, all of your interns are going to be Black or Latinx. So you know, that's an easy start. And interestingly, when we started the BLX internship, it conveniently happened right when I was taking on the role of Chief of Innovation. And I think Mary Beth one of our co-CEOs forwarded over, hey, look what these guys are doing. This is amazing. And I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. Let's do it. And our whole management team's like, we do not have time. We are destroyed right now. I'm like, I got time. I'll do it. Period. It's going to be this much money. This is how much I need. My summer project. I'm doing it one way or the other. So like, it's either that or I'm out of here. You know what I mean? Like, right. I didn't oh, have wow. to say that because everyone liked <laughs> the idea. So I didn't have to threaten anything. But I, you know, I would have if I had to. I'm not opposed to a little gentle threatening Gentle to get what I want, you know? <laughs> and I said, I'm going to do it. And they're like, okay, well, you got to handle it yourself because we just don't have any resources to do it. We're just too slammed. We'd underhired. And so we were just completely buried. And so we took on six because I don't do anything by half measures. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we learned a lot that summer about how to run a good internship. And this year we've done it, you know, we only took four this year because we felt like that was probably a better number than six for us at our size. And learned a lot in that first one and then totally changed the program in the second, in the second year. Uh, it's structured very differently. We yeah, like to I, fail and fail quickly. Yeah, I love how you also have like the speaker series that you've done. And thank you for making that available to the rest of our interns as well. It's been amazing just hearing from so many different people and their stories. I wanted to shift gears a little bit and ask you how like your money experiences growing up has, if he has had any impact at all on what you do today. So let's say, start with Jason, like what was your, something that you observe about money growing up and ha did that yeah. have any impact in your role today? Yeah. Thank you. That's a great question. Yeah. I would say that what I observed about it was its absence, if that makes sense. It, not the absence of money per se. My parents were reasonably well off, but the absence of it as like a subject of awareness or of 
discussion. And so, you know, that's definitely one thing that really appeals to me about Abacus's approach, and that's sort of a kinder life planning-based model, which just acknowledges both that, you know, it's culturally often a taboo subject and, you know, makes space for that discomfort, while at the same time understanding and supporting the fact that must be discussed and understood and dealt with is a reality we all face and that bringing it out into the open and sharing about it is an effective way to, <laughs> to, to deal with it. So, yeah. Well, thank you. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. When you said the absence of money, I thought about like me growing up as well. <laughs> there, was <definitely, laughs> sure. there was definitely absence of money, but it's a great point that you bring up. It's not just the absence of money itself, but just the awareness of how it works and how it impacts your life and the things you can do with it, right? Because it's not all about necessarily accumulating the most of it just for the sake of it. And that's one of the things I like about what you guys do is incorporate your client's values as well. And how can we impact the world too, right? I mean, it's just amazing how you do it as a firm and also for your clients. So that is awesome. Thank you for sharing that. How about you, JD? Oh, my parents were literally the worst with money ever. Uh, one time my dad lost $10,000 cash in his shoe. He was a criminal defense attorney, got paid in cash a lot, fell right out of his pants pocket when he hung his pants up, you know, and then flew right into his shoe and it was gone for like three, four weeks. Uh, that was rent money. And as a little kid, we had lots of it, you know, when he was running his legal practice. And then later we had none of it and lost our house and moved into a smaller house and, you know, kind of middle-class problems. We were never really poor, but, you know, ultimately seeing how just a complete ignorance and lack of attention to money could absolutely, you know, kind of destroy your life on some level, um, or at least destroy your lifestyle was pretty eye-opening. I learned early on that if I wanted to have a good financial life, that was up to me. And I've always been a pretty independent kid, independent thinker. I never really needed a whole lot of parenting in my mind. I think people looking at my life and my choices as a teenager might have disagreed with me, <laughs> but I didn't feel like I needed anyone and always kind of took my own path. I think I might be the first person to get hired at Price Waterhouse and to attend UCLA who uh, took a GED in high school because I didn't want to go to my economics class. And that was my, ended up being my major in college. I'm not someone who requires consistency of thought. And that was my, you know, kind of chaotic money life as a kid. And if I wanted systems and I wanted to have money, that I needed to do that for myself. So I kind of figured it out all on my own. There's no one ever taught me about money outside of you know what I need to do. I'm still a terrible saver. It is almost physically painful for me to save money. <laughs> um, I have to put weird systems in place for me to be able to squirrel money away because otherwise I just want to spend it. It's way more fun to spend money than save money. I mean, let's be real. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, and it's great that you're vulnerable like that too, because I think it helps clients. You know, it's one of the things like I do, like I put on my website, like, hey, I, I got to do credit card debt in college, you know, as a freshman, you know, it's okay. Like we make mistakes as part of the process, you know, and Absolutely. Uh, JD, I think that event, right, of losing your house was eventually led you to be in this space, right? Like uh, filing your dad's tax return, right? You bought like TurboTax or something or? Yep. I was a little theater kid and decided my dad needed to do his taxes and someone was going to have to figure it out. And I guess it's got to be me. I didn't know what I was doing. Luckily, TurboTax had their little wizard and he just clicked <laughs> through. My, my dad was like, how did you learn all this stuff? I'm like, you know, I don't know. Something. <laughs> just reading the questions off a screen, you know, that's essentially going to computer could have done it essentially. But it was where I learned that it wasn't about 
as a financial advisor, you don't need to be smarter about money than your clients. Because what's stopping your clients from financial success isn't their lack of knowledge necessarily. It's their lack of willingness to look at it. And all you need to do is come in and shine the light on something that needs to be fixed. Say, I'm going to be here and I'm going to hold your hand while we fix it. And most of the time, that's all people need. And they need to know they're not alone. And it's why I am vulnerable about my own kind of money stuff. The number of clients who, when I say I'm terrible at saving money, that they look at me, they're like, you are? Oh, I feel so much better about myself because (laughs) I'm also terrible at saving money. And if you're terrible at it, then I must not be broken. And that's the most important feeling you can give someone as a financial advisor, in my opinion. Yeah, that is so powerful. I'm like, I think they think if if you struggle with that, then I'm going to be okay. I'm normal, you know? And I think in the financial advice world, we've done a good job of making ourselves, you know, almost seem abnormal. Like we just got everything together. We've never made a financial mistake or a misstep or anything. We got it all dialed in. So, you know, you can bring your silly mistakes to me and I can tell you, that. (laughs) you know, that's kind of how we, (laughs) but then when they get to talk to you, you know, after you get through it, then they're like, Oh, wow. You you struggled with this too. Cause there's all things that we have that we're trying to navigate. You know, money's Brian Portnoy does a good job of talking about when money was introduced, how short a time a money has actually been introduced into humankind. It hasn't been here very long, right? And so we have all of these, you know, thoughts, ideals, money scripts, whatever you want to call them, around something that we haven't had much time to adjust to and adapt to, even down into the market, right? We talked about that in, in one of his classes. And like, you know, as humans, we try to survive, right? It's fight or flight. You know, we get into that position and we want to fight or flight. So when we see things going on crazy, like with the market, it's counterintuitive for us to stay put, you know? And so we have a lot of different things that are just in our mind that work against us, if you will. And being more human as you're doing allows people to make the connection with uh, their advisor, their person, and be able to make changes from that. So I I appreciate you just saying that because a lot of advisors won't. Yeah. You got to see the path to success. And if it just looks like such a big jump from where you are, like, you know, if I watch people playing basketball on TV, I'm like, well, I can't get there. Mm -hmm. That's entertainment because there's no path for me to be in the NBA. You know what I mean? That's not a realistic (laughs) scenario. And it wasn't ever like it wasn't, there was no path that I missed. It wasn't one that I just missed the sign. It wasn't there. And for our clients to see that we started where they are and are now where we are that it wasn't something, some natural born talent to be good at money. They can then see that path. Once you can see a path, you can walk a path. That's not the hard part. It's the vision of it. That's the hard part. Yeah. That's super powerful. Is there any personal finance tip, concept, book, or piece of advice that you receive that you can share with us that just had an impact on you? Jason, you want to start? Yeah. I'll drop the, both of our founders have written a book. And like JD was talking about earlier in the conversation, they both were or have been from the start kind of interested in this, you know, what we're now calling kind of behavioral finance, right? Well, one of our speakers in the series is the, you know, the chief behavioral officer at, at Orion, right? So this is a thing that's definitely top of mind, as they say, but both Brent and Spencer kind of, you know, had already been thinking about that stuff way back in the day. I'm sure they were not alone, but anyway, and I just love both the titles, actually. The Spencer's is The Cure for Money Madness and Brent's is It's Not About the Money, you know? So they both just sort of tie back into what we've, and saying where it's, you know, the, uh, or as Amazon just remarked, like, you know, the whole notion of fiat money itself and also wealth are completely alien to, you know, the human experience for, you know, preceding 40,000 years, et cetera. <laughs> and so we need to create systems in place 
for people to manage it, even though it's completely outside of the way that we work internally. Yeah, I just think those are both great, uh, great reads. Got it. The Cure for Money Madness. And mm-hmm. it's not about the money. Yeah, I'm definitely yeah. going to look those up. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I love yeah. those titles. Those yeah, titles no, exactly. are awesome. yeah, they're totally. It does sound a little bit like Brent is telling Spencer that it's not about the money. <laughs> 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 Which book came out first? Uh, that's I it, don't yeah. think it was the money, bro. Yeah. Uh, Brent came out about a year first. That's funny. It that does follow funny. that way, but it does kind of sound like that. They got, it's like yes, seeing two brothers ribbing each other over uh, beers. We got to retitle that. It's not about the money, bro. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah second edition. That's the update. <laughs> I love it. That's my version. You know, interestingly, I've learned more about personal finance and kind of money as a concept through reading science fiction than I have through any business book or personal finance book. I think sci-fi writers have the ability to propose something so vastly different and then explore what the implications of that would be on a society. The Mars Trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson uh, goes deep into a gift economy. Like, what does it look like if you pay first and then get what you deserve from the gift you gave? And that sounds kind of weird to think about from the beginning, but then once you start exploring the implications of it, it creates you know interesting thoughts about how you can structure all sorts of things. I think science fiction is one of the best ways to explore really sensitive and difficult topics in a really safe way. Um, because as soon as it's no longer humans doing it to each other and there's aliens or it's no longer here on Earth, it's on Mars or whatever, suddenly you're able to look at concepts without that emotional impact on it. And Dr. Seuss knew this when he's talking about the Starbelly Sneetches, which is just talking about racism. You know, it's much easier to look at racism when you're talking to kids when it's star-bellied snitches than when it's actual people. Then it's harder to talk about. But if you can separate it, separate the emotions out, explore it, and then reapply it back to who we are, suddenly it's like, well, yeah, that's right, I guess. It makes total sense now without having to, you know, get through that difficult conversation. Now, I like the difficult conversations too, but sometimes we end up talking about the conversation as opposed to talking about the concept. Gotcha. Removing that emotion. Yeah, that's powerful. Never looked at it that way. It's pretty interesting. Thank you for sharing that. So I wanted to uh, ask you before we wrap up, I know, Jason, we can't find you online, right? I know purposely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is correct. I've been expunged. I I wish, I wish. I would love to be in your (laughs) shoes, believe it or not. (laughs) It's pretty Um, chill over here, I got (laughs) to say. I love it. Those that want to know more about Abacus and everything that you're doing, where can they find you, whether it's online or, you know, social media and so on? Oh, yeah. Um, No, I mean, they're welcome to call or email me at any time. I'm happy to chat with anybody. No worries. I love it. I love it. How about you, JD? I'm easy to find on Twitter and LinkedIn. I generally check those most often. I mean, a couple of Facebook groups still, but for the most part, I've, Facebook is boring these days. Um, but I'm pretty easy to find. Most people seem to be able to find me. If you can't find me, you're just not looking hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes for your website and social media. So another important question. Do we need to have long hair to work in the growth department? <laughs> uh, it's not a requirement. But I think it's a pretty high correlation. I think actually it's a hundred percent correlation, right? We now. all do, yeah. So <laughs> long hair and no suits. Not right? stated. Yes, right. All right, <laughs> cool. I have a suit for funerals. A suits for parties, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no funerals ties. and weddings. I, I have a couple of nice suits that are fun to wear, but I don't usually wear ties unless it's a bow tie if I'm being formal. Mm. Gotcha. 
<laughs> I'm like, I, I was, yeah, everybody talking about the long hair. I was like, that's, I, I just can't do it. I can't even, my mind won't grow. So if I could grow it, I'd have long hair now. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I've had two haircuts since pandemic started. So it's just the most convenient thing. I didn't start by thinking, hey, I want long hair. I just started by thinking, I'm sick of getting my hair cut. Um, what's, the, what's the lowest maintenance thing I can do for my hair? <laughs> right. <laughs> this length, apparently, right around the shoulders. It's any longer, then it starts becoming troublesome. That's so funny. Uh, well, thank you both gentlemen for being here. And again, thank you for all your support of the BLX internship program. I wanted to ask you one last thing before we wrap up. And that was, if you had any just piece of advice for anyone that wants to get more involved and take action to just help make profession more diverse and inclusive, what would be a good place to start? What would you tell them? You know, that just general piece of advice. Jason, you want to go first? Well, I mean, calling you guys clearly is the <laughs> first thing everyone should do. But, uh, you know, jumping in and, and participating in this excellent program. But I mean, I think the most fundamental thing is just listen, you know, listen to the other voices that are around you, right? The, you know, coming back to, you know, prehistory, right? Like xenophobia is a natural thing that, that is evolutionarily supported, right? Like that's, you know, just part of the fact of the creatures that we are, but it's obviously not appropriate anymore, right? We live in a globalized world together to cheek to jowl a lot of times, right? And so finding that strength and that willingness and openness to hear from the others around you is, I just think, the most fundamental piece of it. Thank you. And I don't follow rules, so I'm going to give you more than one. Sorry. <laughs> I did two. Sorry. I got two in. Go. <laughs> I'll be disappointed if you did it, JD. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the first one is don't be afraid to have difficult conversations. I find myself talking about stuff that, you know, 10 years ago would have been pretty terrifying for me. And the more you just are willing to have those conversations about racism or you know, gender issues or whatever, the more you'll learn and the better human you'll be. Just be willing to have the conversation. Some practical matters, if you have pipeline issues and everyone who applies to work for you is white and male. I mean, as Jason said, the first thing is call BLX. Your pipeline problem will get uh, better overnight. But the other thing is take off a uh, one to three year experience requirement from your job ads. In general, those things, because of all the systemic barriers we've had, if you're only focusing on people who have already had experience, your pipeline is going to be filled. It's going to be 75% white and male because that's the people who are in the industry on average. So you have to not have experience requirements if you want to get out of 75% of your applicants being white and male, just statistically. So get rid of that thing as soon as humanly possible. If that's quite honestly the only thing you do, if you just said, look, okay, fine, no longer do we require any level of experience for an entry level hire which you'd think should be true by definition, but isn't out in the world. If you do that, I think you're going to have a better, more diverse applicant pipeline than any other change you could possibly make. Well, you know what? That was awesome. I thank both of you for coming on to the show. It's been absolutely incredible. Thank you for the work that you're doing and the support that you've given us here at, you know, with the BLX internship program, um, taking on 10 interns in the last two years. And, and the speaker series and just everything that you guys have done. We can't thank you enough for that. And with that, we just wanted to wrap up, wrap up the show. And as you all know, this is the Diversity in Action podcast. If you haven't already, we're asking you now to subscribe to the podcast. You can get these episodes when they come out. Hit that subscribe button up in the top right or wherever you are listening to this at. And until next time, we will see you. Thank you for listening to the Diversity in Action podcast. 
To learn more about the BLX Internship Program and sign up for our newsletter, please visit our website at blxinternship.org.